It is wonderful to be here today. Nice to see all of you here. We pray that you are well and hope and pray that you enjoy the study of the day. We're going to talk about money for a little while today. And specifically, I want to talk about the financial function of the church. And I will tell you, for me, it's been a really eye-opening study. I hope it's interesting to you, and I hope you feel it's it's beneficial. And you might would think, well, where do we start in Scripture to study the financial function of the church? Because there are a whole lot of things that make the church function. You know, fellowship is one thing that makes the church function, as it should function. Uh Teaching makes the church function as it should function. This building helps the church to function in a way that it should function. And our finances are no different in that respect. And I want to begin today in the book of Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. And on this occasion we have the beginning of the church. You know, Jesus had said he would build his church. The gates of hell would not prevail against it. He told Peter, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. And on this occasion, on the day of Pentecost, Peter used that. He used the keys to the kingdom to open the church. And if you're familiar with the passage, or the chapter rather, he preaches the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And those Jews who heard the sermon were pricked in their heart, and they said, what should we do? And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now I want you to notice in verse 41, they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. If you were to take and back up into chapter 1, you're going to find that there were about 120 disciples. In the three years that Jesus taught and preached, there were 120 people that began to follow him. And I assume they were all there on this day of Pentecost when he gets up and preaches a sermon. And then suddenly, we go from 120 to 3,120. And there's something interesting about this. I don't know if you've given thought, because I never had, and I've, I've given a lot of thought since I finally thought about this. All these people were, most of them come to town. Pentecost was a celebration. And if you study the chapter closely, there were men from every nation. People who spoke different languages. People from faraway lands. They were all come there to have this celebration of Pentecost. And so you have a wide variety of people who've become Christians on this first gospel sermon. And now they're there. And if you really think about it, there's not a New Testament There's not a Bible like we use. There's not church buildings. There's not elders. There's not deacons. There's not evangelists. There's disciples and apostles. And what would you say would be the greatest need? What did those people, those 3,000 people need? I I would say they needed time. They needed to study. They needed to hear the word taught. And I have every confidence that those 120 disciples 
were as busy as they could be in the coming days and weeks teaching people about Jesus because they had just learned the basics, the death, the burial, the resurrection. And they've got to teach them how the church is to function, how it all works. Because it's brand new and the church is in its infancy. And so what they had on their hands were 3,000 people who didn't need to go back home. They needed to stay right there. They needed time to learn and to grow and gain some strength and understanding about the church. And so what this is going to require is a very interesting thing. Because they're spiritual babes and they need to spend that time with the disciples. Some of them, their money runs out rather quickly. Because they've made a long journey. They've traveled a long ways for the day of Pentecost. And then they become a Christian. And they probably were planning on going right back home. The money runs out. And so now we've got one of the first crises, we might say, a small crisis within the church. These people need to eat. And I want you to read with me. They continued, these 3,000 new converts continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers, exactly what they needed. They needed to learn and grow. It's critical because if they didn't learn and they didn't get some strength, they're going to fall away. And I suppose if there was one enormous opportunity for Satan to just crush the infant church, this is it. Starve them out. They've got to leave for financial reasons. They'd have to go home. Fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common. Now listen. And sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need they got to eat 3,000 people you know if uh, if it costs like today basically if it costs $15 to feed them it's $45,000 just for breakfast $115,000 a day to feed these people some of them maybe had a little money. Undoubtedly, some didn't. And as the days went by, more and more ran out of money. Because most of them had come there, had traveled there, you see. They sold their possessions. It's the first financial function we see in the church. They sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking of bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved and so every day new people are coming in every day the number is growing every day people got to eat and so common people just like you and me sold their possessions It's how the financial function of the church works. Some of them sold land. Others evidently sold houses. That's a tremendous amount of money that's required. 
Some sold whatever it was, silver or silverware or jewelry or jewels or some people undoubtedly had money in the bank and they just brought some of the money and gave. Nobody lacked. It's one thing I want you to notice. Nobody lacked. They had what they needed because they all shared and they worked together and this is the first financial function of the church. Now I want to hear the first financial statement by a preacher. And this is Peter right here. Silver and gold have I none. <laughs> That's the first statement about a preacher. But you know if you think about the book of Acts. And the things that we read as you go along. There's a lot of statements that have to do with how money worked. And how it functioned within the church. In chapter 4 beginning of verse 32. The multitude of them. Rather, the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own. But they had all things common. Now, I don't believe that meant they had one giant bank account. I don't think that would work real good. We might have a struggle if we all had one giant bank account. Me and my wife struggle a little occasionally about how to spend our money, just two of us. But they shared what they had because they were of one heart and one soul. Verse 33 says, With great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Now, I want to stop right there. This is two chapters later. I, I don't know how much time has passed. I don't know if it's a week or a day or ten days or two months. We, we don't, I don't really get a sense of the time. But I do know this. People continued to give. The common people. The 3,000 people. Continue to sell possessions and lands and those kinds of things. He mentions houses here. And they brought them for the apostles to distribute in a fair and equitable way. And evidently that's what they did. And I want you to continue reading with me in verse 36. And Joseph, who by the apostle was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it. And he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. For them to use. What he had he gave. Freely, willingly. Why? So that the church could grow. So that the church could function. And it's really greater than that in this sense. So that people could become Christians. So that people could remain Christians. And learn and grow. It required this money. And in fact if you think about it. It required an enormous amount of money. At the beginning, an enormous amount for the church to function in the way that it had to function. And so, having ended here with Barnabas, he, he, he graciously, he humbly, he sells his land or possession, whatever it was, and he comes and he gives it to the apostles. We go to the next chapter, 5, beginning of verse 1. A certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession. Kept back part of the price. His wife also being privy to it. And brought a certain part. 
and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now what he's doing is what has been going on. Other people were doing it. Undoubtedly they had witnessed it. Undoubtedly they had seen other people come to the apostles and lay the money down. And so he determines they're going to do the same. But they keep some of the money back. And they put some of the money forth. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? To keep back part of the price of the land. Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And So I don't know if, if perhaps we're in a little bit of a transition away from everybody being together. Maybe there are Christians who are traveling back home by this point, going back to where they live. Some of them undoubtedly starting a congregation in their home, beginning to teach people about Jesus. Undoubtedly, some were going home. Some of this burden may be reduced. Maybe it continues on, this burden of the people. Because new and new people are becoming Christians. But one of the things that said here that really struck me, Peter said, it's, it's your own. This possession was yours. That Once you sold it, the money was yours to do as you wanted to do. And so I, we don't see this as necessarily law. That they had to give this money. Evidently it was freely given by those who gave it. But Ananias and Sapphira had issue. They, they were a little bit greedy. And they lied about this money. I think it would have been fine if they had came and said. Here's, here's half the money. We're going to have to keep the other half. They didn't do that though. They lied about it. And if we continue on in Acts chapter 6. We still see a further function financially of the church in those days when the numbers of the disciples were multiplied so evidently they're still growing there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration to this point evidently the money that comes in is spent on food and foodstuffs and every day there's food given away it clearly illustrates here that there were widows who were being cared for who needed that care Perhaps there were other people we don't know. But you can see from day one, the financial function of the church required, it required Christians to give. Had they not given, it wouldn't have worked. The truth is, had they not given, it would have collapsed. And people would have left. If they would have went and found food or found a job, they would have went home. And we don't read a whole lot in the next couple of chapters. If you go with me uh, to chapter 8, Saul, uh, he wreaks havoc on the church. And we find in chapter 8 the disciples are scattered. And they go everywhere preaching the word. And so this cluster of Christians that are in Jerusalem is scattered about. And they go off everywhere. And, and from 8... On to our next passage, which is going to be about chapter 11. Undoubtedly, there are congregations that begin to spring up over Israel and other places. 
And so we want to read a little bit here in chapter 11, beginning verse 29. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. This is financial function of the church. They made a decision. We're going to help our brethren who are suffering. In verse 30, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so one of the things that we see in the functioning of the church was the money was given by people who were willing to give it. The money was gathered. The money was carried by Barnabas and Saul and it was given to the elders and they distributed the money. That's what they did. Acts 15, beginning of verse 2. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. This question that they're having a disagreement about is do the Gentiles need to be circumcised? The Gentile Christians who are coming into the church, do they need to be circumcised? It's a big question. There's a big disagreement. I want you to notice verse 3. Paul and Barnabas have got to make a journey and go to Jerusalem. They've got to go there to talk unto the apostles and elders about this question. It's a very important thing. In fact, it's critical to understand the work of the kingdom and how does this work and what should we do. And if we don't answer this question, there are going to be people who are going to fall away or we're going to do it wrong. You see, the paramount thing was that people be able to grow and become Christians and be saved. That's the function of the church. They've got to take a long journey to Jerusalem. Now I want you to notice verse 3. And being brought on their way by the church. What does that mean? They were brought on their way by the church. I'll tell you what I think it means. I think it means they traveled a ways and spent the night with a family in the church. I think they provided them lodging and probably supper and breakfast. I think the next morning they got up and they traveled a little further. And they were brought on their way by that. They probably stopped in another town where there was a church. They stayed with the family. Maybe they slept in the church. Most likely they stayed with the church family. It could have been an elder or some other person they had met. And that family fed them. And maybe they gave them a little bit of money and said, here's some money. And the next day they'd do the same. And they stopped in some church member's home. They spent the night. They gave them some food. They gave them clothes if they needed it. They provided for them so that they could take their journey. And this here is another one of those financial functions of the church. And ultimately they arrived at Jerusalem. And they had this great discussion about the question. And you know, if you go on and read further, and we're not going to read a whole lot more in Acts specifically in the way we've got started here. There are are preachers, apostles, there are evangelists, and there are other men who teach, who journey, who travel to preach, to teach all over the world. You know, we read about Paul's missionary journeys. And it's very difficult, it always has been, for me to get a sense of how far he went, how long he was gone, where all 
there's a lot of names of towns I'm familiar with. I mean, Macedonia, you know where Macedonia was. You know exactly how far that was. It's like going to Pampa. I don't know where Macedonia was. I've never been there. I've, I've maybe looked out on a map. I don't have a sense of how those things work. I want to give you a little bit of information. If you're interested in this, you can go to this website. I'll be happy to give it to you after uh, services. But Stanford University put together a whole study on the cost of travel in the ancient world. And it's kind of interesting. They figured things on a price and cost basis of the year 200. Now, how they did that, I don't know. You can go and you can look at it. It's quite interesting. Paul's missionary journeys, there were three, and then he finally journeyed to Rome. He traveled about 10,282 miles by ship and by land. A total of 281 days of travel. The total cost, as, as by this study, was 1,731 denarii. Now, I decided, well, I'll just find out just exactly what a denarii is. That's almost impossible to do. Evidently, as, as time went along, the amount of gold or silver in a denarii changed. The size of the coins changed. And it, it was just a very fluid and fluctuating thing. And it doesn't really make sense to you and I. But I will put it this way. Buying power changes. Our buying power today is different than it was years ago. But the, the most base thing you can find is that one denarii was equal to a day's wages. So I, I don't know what that is. Maybe we might say it's $100 a day. Uh, I don't know. But that gives you a certain idea that these missionary journeys that Paul took cost 1,731 days wages. So it was fairly expensive. It was fairly costly for him to travel. Evidently it was costly to travel by ship, but it was quick. And it was cheaper to travel by land, but it was slow. And you know, that's no different today. It's fairly quick to get in an airplane and fly somewhere, but it's kind of costly. Point being, I believe that Paul, as he traveled, was brought on his way by the church. I think that's how that worked. I don't think Paul had the means to just do that. And it required a lot of people to help him to do that and to be on the road that long on those journeys. Okay, so I want to switch gears here a little bit. And I put together a little overview of financial responsibilities of the church and I just want to go through these with you. And I've got two main areas here. Uh, one being the gospel. And two being benevolent works. And, and we could argue about this and maybe break it down in different ways. And that would probably be okay. Uh, I certainly don't think I've covered everything that there is to cover. But it takes money for the church to function. It's just no different than it takes you to function. It, to have a life, to get by, it takes money to do that. <clears throat> elders, according to Scripture in 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Now, I, I will tell you, there's a, a lot of people who study this. There's not total agreement. On this, uh, the phrase double honor has two basic uh, meanings. 
if you looked up this in Strong's or Thayer's Concordance. And the number one meaning or the first meaning is a value by which the price is fixed or the price paid. Essentially, it means to pay a salary as the idea. An idea of double honor essentially is a double salary is one way to look at this. The other way that we could look at this is in the sense of respect or honor which belongs to or is shown to one or the honor which one has by reason of rank or state of office uh, which he holds or reverence. It, so there are people who would say, well, what he's not talking about money, what he's talking about is he needs double the respect, you know, double the honor or, or to look at that. And, and someone asked me one time, well, how do you know? How would you decide which one of these? Because they're fairly different, one being a salary paid essentially and the other being to give and show respect to that person. How do we know which one of these fits within the passage of Scripture? And I believe the only way to know is through the context. I think when you look at the context of Scripture, it will help you to know. And so if we look at the next passage of Scripture, it's kind of interesting because it says, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. And so I believe that one of the financial responsibilities of the church is to elders. Now, I'm not here today, because I think somebody throw a book at me or something. I'm not here today to say we need to provide both our elders a double salary. I'm not here to say that. But I do want to ask you a question. Would they be able to do more for the church if they were relieved financially, of some of their life's burdens? I think it's a pretty simple answer, yes. They would be able to. And I believe the teaching is that elders can receive pay. That's what I believe the teaching is. And I'd be happy to visit with you about that, but I think this is one of the first financial responsibilities. They can be paid. It doesn't mean they'd have to have total pay, but even expense pay. And I, I think one of the reasons for this could have been the nature of that work. It requires a lot of travel, a lot of hospitality in their homes, which would mean a lot of cost of food and those kinds of things. But that's some thoughts on that. Secondly, uh, one of the other factors that promotes the gospel, not just elders, but evangelists. Galatians 6 verse 6 says, Let him who is taught in the word share and all good things with him who teaches. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9.14 Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And so we have along under supporting the gospel, not just elders, but we have evangelists who would work and travel and do that. We also have outreach, what I'm going to call outreach we would call that gospel meetings, which cost money. We would say advertisements in some way. You might put that in the paper or on Facebook or the radio or print flyers, on and on and on. There are things that are associated. It costs money for the preacher to travel here and to teach. And I want you to notice in Luke chapter 8, beginning of verse 1, now it came to pass afterward that he, this is Jesus, went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God and the twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, 
out of whom had come seven demons, and Jonah, Joanna rather, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. Well, there's no other way to interpret it except that these women paid for his travel. They provided Jesus and the twelve the financial support so that they can go from place to place and that they can teach. That's what they did. And outreach takes money. It just takes money to do those things. A lot of other things could go under this, I think. And I won't try to get into all those. The fourth area is building cost. It just costs money to have a church building, whether it's, it's large and grand or small and simple. Uh, or large and simple. Or small and grand. It doesn't matter. It costs, takes money to do that. And I will tell you that within the congregations that I travel with, we've got a whole lot of congregations that need new buildings. A lot of them are getting old. And, and it's just going to take a financial, uh, it's just going to take a lot of finances to do something with that. Luke 14, verse 28, For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he hath sufficient to finish it? There was a whole lot of discussion. There was a lot of planning. There was a lot of counsel. And amongst the leadership of this congregation to figure out if we could build a building like this. And there was a lot of effort put into that. But this building that we have, it supports the gospel. It's the purpose of the building. It's a place for us to worship. It's a place for us to teach. It's not here just to be an emblem of the size of congregation we are, or something of that nature, it is here because we want to use it to spread the gospel. And so within that, there's a whole lot of cost. The heating and air, there's insurance, there's computers nowadays, didn't used to have to have that, PowerPoint and a sound system, and on and on and on. And those things are all what we spend money on in order for the gospel to be preached. And that's just one of the responsibilities of the church. And the second area, or the next area, which I really think there's only two, is benevolent works. We have a responsibility to help people that are in need. And Jesus helped a lot of people who were in need. In fact, he said, the poor you'll have with you always. And I don't know that that's the primary function of the church, but it's certainly a function in some way. There are going to be people in need, and they're going to need help. So Romans 15, 26, it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia, to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. So the early church, we have an example here of churches gathering money and sending that money far away to help other people who had needs. And so we do the same here. There are people in the community that we need to help and we try to help. There are people that are acquaintances or word comes to us about other people who need help and they need benevolence. And so... Money is sent to try to help them. First John 3 verse 17. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him. How dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In a sense, when we give money to those who are in need, it is a show of love. A show of care. And in a certain way, that in itself supports the gospel. 
those relationships that are built out of care and concern are going to help people. And help people at some point maybe to hear the words of truth in the gospel. Secondly, under benevolent works is widows. And we read a little bit in, in Acts chapter 6 about a daily ministration. And there were widows who were cared for in that time. I want to talk to you a little bit more about this idea of caring for widows from 1 Timothy 5, 9 through 11. He says, let not a widow be taken under the number or into the number under threescore years old. Having been the wife of one man. Well reported of for good works. If she have brought up children. If she have lodged strangers. If she have washed the saints feet. If she have relieved the afflicted. If she have diligently followed every good work. But let the younger widows refuse. But the younger widows refuse. For when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ. They will marry. Evidently. As a congregation, we can care for a widow or multiple widows. If, if they're over the age of 60 and they have lived a good life, there's a certain set of qualifications here, you might say, then we can take that woman into the number. And we can provide for her food, her clothes, her medical needs, whatever she needed, evidently. And so that's one other thing we need to give thought to, that we can have a financial responsibility as a church to care for a woman like that. <clears throat> Finally, we have orphans. James 1.27, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, to keep himself unspotted from the world. The word visit here is an interesting word, and it basically means to relieve uh, to look at, uh, to select, or relieve. It, it means to go see about these people and help them to, with what they need in life. That is the idea of this passage. And so you probably could look at this and say, well, there's this area or that area, and I think that's probably would be true maybe, but uh, these are just some areas I think we really have responsibility as a church, as a whole, together, to think on and make sure that we're doing what we should in these areas. So there's a principle within scripture about finances and about giving and specifically. And that is sparingly or bountifully. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 6 he says, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. And it's a very simple concept, and we're all aware of it. If you don't sow enough seed, you cannot reap a harvest. And there are certain things that we, when we do them, you've got to put enough effort to it for it to be of any good. And the finances is no different. If we're sparing with our finances, we'll reap sparingly. It costs money to have gospel meetings, but they are a benefit to us because we get teaching, it's an opportunity to outreach. It's excitable. It's a excitable thing. And we get to bring people in. They get to hear the word of God. And ultimately people become Christians. And as more people come here and become Christians. Then more people are giving to the church. And I've heard it said. A rising tide lifts all boats. And so as we grow. We have more financial resources. Because the idea is more people are giving. And so we should be bountiful in that giving. 
The book of Proverbs 22, verse 6, he says, He that hath a bountiful eye shall be blessed, for he giveth of his bread to the poor. There's blessings that come to us when we give, is the idea. Malachi 3, verse 8, Will a man rob God? We think, well, it would be pretty hard to rob God, wouldn't it? And he says, Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? And he says, in tithes and offerings. And if you study the people of Israel, they were commanded to give the best without blemish, without spot. And they ended up giving the poor, or not the poor, rather, <laughs> the, the lame and the blind. That's what they ended up giving. They robbed God. Giving money is something that God notices. I suppose God notices everything, but in Scripture, he takes note. Acts 9, 36, Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. An alms deed is a gift of money. And this woman, we don't know if she was a widow or she was just single. She was a woman who filled her life with giving of money. Acts 10 verse 4. When he looked on him. He was afraid and said. What is it Lord? And he said unto him. Thy prayer and thine alms are come up. For a memorial before God. This is. Uh, I went blank. Who is it Garland? Everybody went blank. Oh. Uh. You always wondered why there's a Bible up here underneath. This is why. Cornelius. It came to me. <laughs> Cornelius. He wasn't even a Christian. But he was the kind of man who helped with his money and his finances. He gave to people. And this was of note to God. <clears throat> Luke 21, beginning in verse 1. And he looked up and saw the rich men. This is Jesus. He looked up, saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. And he said, of a truth, I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast in under the offerings of God, but she of her penury hath cast in all that she had, in uh, cast in all the living that she had. This was very special, evidently, to the Lord. This woman was poor. This woman was poor. But I want to tell you something. Even the poor are re required to give. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 and 2. Now, can... Concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. You're probably familiar with the passage, that there was to be a regular contribution, and he specifically, if you'll notice, says for the saints, uh, that was taken up. And these monies need to be on hand and they need to be ready for when the apostle got there so that he could take them. 
Acts chapter 20, verse 33, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. In Proverbs 21, verse 25 and 6, he says, The desire of the slothful killeth him, for his hands refuse to labor. He coveteth greedily all the day long, but the righteous giveth and spareth not. Okay, I want to wrap all this up. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning of verse 19, he says, Lay up not for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I tell you, the, the financial giving, the financial responsibility that's not on this congregation, but on each of us individually, is a matter of the heart. It's a heart issue. It's easy to say we, we don't have the money. I'll tell you what it is down deep. It's a heart issue. I want to read to you about a, a congregation. 2 Corinthians 8, beginning of verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. That in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability... Yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. It's a little wordy. I'll break it down for you. The church was afflicted. I don't know how. It wasn't a little thing, evidently, because he's called it a great trial of afflictions. So we're not talking about a congregation where everything's running smoothly. We're not talking about a congregation where there's no problems or trials of any kind. We're talking about a congregation that's really got challenges. Secondly, this church was impoverished. They weren't known for wealth. In fact, he says deep poverty. The third thing he says, what this church was willing to give financially. Even though they had these other problems, it was in their heart to give. In fact, he says freely willing. And he he qualifies this a little bit more by saying they were joyous about their giving. It made them happy, you see. It filled their hearts with joy. In fact, he says an abundance of joy. 
and their church gave liberally. In fact, he says they gave according to their ability and beyond their ability. I don't know how, how they did that. I don't know if that meant they worked extra or they spent less. But I, this is an example. That not only did they give liberally, they gave beyond. And then finally, point number six, the church demanded that Paul take the money. He must not have wanted to. You know, when I first started preaching, I got a phone call one night, and there's a, a widow lady I knew, and she said, I'm going to start supporting your work. And I said, no, you're not. She said, oh, I, yes, I am. I said, I don't want you to do that. She said, I'm going to. And I got a check the next month, $25. And the next month, and every once in a while I would see her and I would thank her. And she'd say, I don't know how long I can do that. And I'd say, just don't do it. Just don't send that money. No, I'm doing it. As long as I can, I'm doing it. You know, uh, I don't know how you get paid. But I tell you, when, that, when I see that check in the mail, sometimes I'm like, whoo, <laughs> I'm glad that's here. I never got her check that it didn't make me feel bad. She told me, I get a part of the work you do. She said, I get a part. I share in that work. That's true. She did. Philippians 4, verse 16. For even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again unto my necessity. Not because I desired a gift, but I desired fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loveth a cheerful giver. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you'd like to know more about this subject or any other Bible topic, send us a message at our Facebook page, The Church of Christ, Wheeler Area.